from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. On this episode of Newt's World, after the recent mass shootings in the last several weeks in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and Highland Park, Illinois, the country has been struggling with how to put a stop to these mass shootings. There are debates on both sides about gun legislation, mental health support, and other resources the government can provide to help law enforcement prevent these terrible attacks. But in order to really make a difference, we need to understand who these mass shooters are what kind of profile they have, and when and why they decide to act. And I wanted to have someone on the podcast who was an expert in understanding the mass shooter profile. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Catherine Schweit. She is an author, attorney, former Chicago prosecutor, career Federal Bureau of Investigation special agent. While at the FBI, she wrote the seminal research entitled a study of 160 active shooter incidents in the United States, 2000 to 2013. Her recent book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, was released last year. Kate, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And even though it's such a sad topic, I love the opportunity to share what I've learned through the years and hopefully to just make a difference. You know, I thought we might start with a stunning story from the weekend mall shooting in Greenwood, Indiana, where three people died, two were injured by a 20-year-old gunman, before a legally armed bystander shot the gunman within two minutes after the gunman had fired 24 rounds. 
Police Chief Jim Eisen said Monday, many more people would have died last night if not for a responsible armed citizen. I mean, it's kind of an incredible story. From your experience, how many times is an active shooter neutralized by a member of the public? It's welcome when it happens, but it's very rare for a couple of reasons. In the last 20 years, out of maybe 300 plus shootings, there's probably been about a dozen, I would say. Maybe more if you count an armed security guard who's trained, of course. But a straight civilian on the street happens to have a gun with them. Very unusual. Very unusual. You know, you were promoted to the FBI executive ranks in 2012 after 20 children were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. And you joined a violence prevention team as part of the White House National Security Council effort. When you were involved in all that, you were part of a crisis team that responded to incidents, including the shootings at the Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Pentagon, and the Navy Yard in the Washington area. I'm curious, when you authored the FBI's seminal research, study of 160 active shooter incidents in the United States, 2000 to 2013, what was that like to compile that many horror stories? You know, the reason that I decided that our team needed to do that is because I was the only law enforcement person on the White House team. And after Sandy Hook, people were so angry. And if you want to know how angry they were, just think about what happened after Uvalde and how people feel about Uvalde in Texas. So I felt like it was incumbent upon us to start pulling those numbers together and to say, how many of these shootings really happen? And everybody was saying to us, Maybe the media is just making a big deal out of it because this was kids. And I just was like, well, I don't really know. So I guess we have to pull the reports together. So we asked all the law enforcement agencies in the country. We looked at every sort of research database on this, and we came through with a methodology where we could pick out these shootings that occurred in public places where the public was at risk, because that's really what we're talking about. An active shooter is an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded area. So when we started, I just didn't really know what kind of numbers we would find. First of all, it was horrible to read police reports about shootings. And so many times people just talk about numbers. When you see it on the news, they say, oh, you know, 13 here, two here, eight here. Every one of those is a person. Every one of those people who's dead has a family. And that's something that really impacts me. My younger daughter is a middle school teacher. So when we were doing the numbers, there were some things that just shocked me. For instance, we studied 14 years. We found 160 incidents in the first 14 years, and we looked from Columbine forward. In the first seven years of the study, we found six shooting incidents a year on average, six. So I was like, okay, so that's like one every other month. But by the time that we compiled the data for the second half of the study, in the seven years at the end of the study, we were averaging 16 incidents a year. So we'd gone from six in the first part to 16. And I mean, that showed a huge increase that we were going on a trend north. And I knew that 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I could tell you we we're going to be where we are today because here's where we are today. A couple weeks ago, the FBI released their numbers from last year using the same methodology, and they found that there were 61 incidents last year. 61 compared to six. So a tenfold increase, right? So we've gone from 
one or two a year. Now we are steadily at 20. Then it was 30. The year before it was 40. Last year it was 61. I can't even imagine where we're going to be by the end of this year. Well, first of all, before I get too deep into this, because it's so stunning, describe just for a minute for the average person, what is an active shooter incident? So, you know, the technical definition is what I said, individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded space. But, you know, what we mean by that is the public is at risk. To me, an active shooter is two pieces. We have a shooter, but because the person is engaged in shooting, the public and law enforcement both have opportunities to end the shooting or stop the shooting or save lives. So if you're trained personally as a civilian in run, hide, fight, if you know where to go, what to do, how to hide, that you should first try to run away, if you know that, there's going to be less a chance that less people will be killed. When I did the initial research, we found that 47% of the incidents where law enforcement had to engage a shooter, a law enforcement officer was killed or injured or both. So almost half of the incidents, law enforcement is literally risking their life to engage a shooter. That told us law enforcement needs to be better trained. That number was probably the most surprising number that I found. The increase in the percentage is so breathtaking. Do you have a theory for why that's happening? I think that there's certainly not just a single answer, right? But there are answers. And there are some pieces to that. I think we're going to see a trend a little bit down in age. And in terms of the average age right now of an active shooter is 35, which is because most active shootings actually happen in places of business. Schools are only like 20% of the shootings. But I think as we get through the numbers, maybe over the last few years, we may see those numbers trend down a little bit, not substantially, but down somewhat. I think what we're seeing now is a trend, particularly with these younger shooters, they're inspired not by someone who's a radical group online necessarily, but they're in online chat boards and they're reading things in other countries. And you know, both the United States and the UK have traditionally had their vexing problem of the neo-Nazi white supremacist group. And we're seeing like 20% of the domestic terrorist cases in the United States fit into that category. I think Director Ray said that's the biggest chunk of the cases that they deal with is these neo-Nazi white supremacists. And it doesn't matter in some ways kind of what their beliefs are. It matters that they're choosing to act out. And I think that in some cases we're seeing they're getting egged on online. So somebody here in the United States or there in the UK is online and they're getting egged on by others to commit these kinds of acts. And I think when one occurs, then another occurs. Let me suggest one other thing. After the Sandy Hook shooting, researchers really began to take a look at the contagion factor, the idea that somebody would shoot because they saw another shooting. The reason they decided to do that is because we know that there is a contagion factor to suicide. If a child commits suicide in high school, there's likely to be more suicides in that high school shortly after that. And the same thing, suicides in your neighborhood, there's likely to be more suicides in your neighborhood or your town. When the comedic actor Robin Williams committed suicide, the CDC said there was a 10% increase in suicides that same year. So suicide is contagious, right? And we wondered whether mass 
shootings were contagious. And the researchers began to look into that. And they found that, in fact, where there was more coverage, there were more shootings. Well, now we cover mass shootings every day. Back then, the contagion factor, you know, a few years ago, in the seven days after the shooting, there's going to be three more shootings. And then it would stop. Then there'd be another month or two go by, and then there'd be another shooting, and then there'd be another three or four shootings right after that. Well, we are in a permanent cycle now where there's a shooting every week. So if there were 61 shootings in last year's tally, and there's only 52 weeks in a year, there is no opportunity to not have a constant contagion factor. So I think that's another thing. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Is there any think tank or organization that starts from your perspective 
and looks at the totality of shootings and then tries to come down to analysis because it seems to me, given just what you've said today, that not just active shooters, but suicides, et cetera, we almost need a blank slate and a totally new approach to rethinking this stuff because we're trapped into a series of analyses that just aren't accurate. That's interesting for me to hear you say that because I wonder what do you think is inaccurate that's out there? What is pervasive that is a message that we should work on getting rid of? Well, I mean, for example, the contagion theory. I'll bet you almost nobody understands it. The death by suicide, the fact that if you're going to measure gun violence, the largest part of it is actually self-applied. There's just a whole series of things you're describing. I mean, the scale of increase is so sobering that it really raises questions about it's not mental health in the classic sense. It is a breakdown of societal cohesion in a way which almost represents Dostoevsky and the rebellion against the czar in the 1880s and 1890s, where people are so alienated that they seek to live out their alienation in ways that are stunningly violent. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. And maybe this is all obvious and, you know, everybody at the FBI gets it. But it's almost like I'd like to see a wall that showed all the different factoids that one should understand before you begin to think about an analysis, which is before you begin to have a conversation. Yeah, that's funny you say that, because that's kind of been my frustration over the years. I mean, you know what this is like. You get invited to lecture someplace, you go and you lecture, and then after you finish, people keep asking you questions, and there's 50 people standing in front of you. You can't get off the stage because they want to ask you more questions, and they say, we didn't know any of this. And, you know, I was giving that kind of speech to law enforcement back when I was in the FBI, and that's why I wrote the book. And you know what? For civilians... I do a podcast now by the same name, Stop the Killing. I do a podcast now because I feel like people keep asking me the same questions. And it gives us that opportunity to discuss all those numbers and these kinds of factors. The FBI has been working on this for more than 10 years specifically. And we issue a report. Who looks at that? But a lot of times government agencies look at things. Secret Service has been working on threat assessment and trying to target people who are going to commit violence for years. That was their whole concept was who's going to target our principles that we have to protect. So that idea that we need to get this message out there, I feel like I've been saying that for 10 years. I did it in the FBI and then I wrote a book and now I'm doing a podcast. And so I do think that there's kind of a hole out there for what understanding the entire picture. No one from Congress is calling me and saying, hey, explain this to me. But they're making legislative decisions. You know, no school board is calling me. But you know who is calling me? My corporate clients. They get it. And they want to keep their employees safe. They want to protect their people. They don't want to have lawsuits filed against them. So they're working diligently to try to resolve these mass shootings that we sometimes don't see them coming because we don't understand the shooters enough which is really the biggest part. I don't think that people understand how to find the shooters and how to prevent them from shooting. Both the U.S. Secret Service and FBI. Behavioral people specifically say it's not a profile because profile means like a bunch of boxes to check where people only look for that. Is the word you would use pattern? Yes, sure. Who are we looking for? Because, of course, those of us who've read various novels about the behavioral parts of the FBI... We all have this imagery. The profilers, sure. 
to get a better grip of this whole active shooter idea, let me start by asking you to distinguish from an FBI perspective or a Secret Service perspective between a profile and a pattern and why the two are really very different technically. That's a great place to start when we talk about the shooters, because I think that when you hear a collective shudder from our behavioral experts down at Quantico, it is when someone uses the word profile. And the reason that they shudder is because profile is a word that kind of eliminates other things. So if I told you that the profile of a shooter is a 35-year-old male living in the suburbs who goes to his business to shoot it up because his wife is divorcing him and he's filed for bankruptcy, those facts could all be true. But then what that means is that people are going to look for 35-year-old white males who live in the suburbs, and they're not going to look for the 20-year-old or the 60-year-old. Our age range of the hundreds of shootings I've studied, 12-year-olds to 88-year-olds. 88? Yes. The Holocaust shooter was 88. And he drove to Washington to shoot up the Holocaust Museum people. He killed a guard first. So a profile takes us into looking for a particular type. And that's the one thing we know for sure. There isn't a particular type. The only actual profile demographic that we have is that they're all males. They're male shooters. And I say they're all, but there've been nearly 400 shootings, 15 women maybe. And of those women, sometimes they are there with their spouse or partner. So it's a duo, which we saw like at Walmart and down in Texas, that was a husband-wife couple. So most everything else from a data standpoint, we think of it as a crapshoot. So that's the reason that we need to research it, right? Because we don't have a profile. We're not looking for a person who's been diagnosed as a pathological fill in the blank with this mental health issue. And then we look for those people because they might commit this kind of act. We're looking for behaviors of concern because anybody could fit into them. And what we know is that 99% are men. But other than that, it could be any other things. So what are the behaviors? And that's patterns of conduct, behaviors of concern. Anybody can fit into that. And that's why it's not a profile. But given the range you're describing, what does that say about the so-called red flag laws? What I'm hearing in that question is that, well, then why have a red flag law if it could be anybody? And I think that's the exact point. I would say anybody can commit a crime. So what are we looking for? A person who is going to commit a mass shooting is on what we would call a pathway to violence. And that pathway is kind of predictable. First, they decide they're going to do it. They get this idea they're going to do this. And why they get that idea is because they have a real or perceived grievance about something in their life, someone in their life, the business they don't like, the wife they don't like, women in general, if they're misogynistic, whatever that is. They don't like a particular ethnic group because they're a hate-filled person in terms of how we think about domestic terrorists, or maybe they have a political belief a social belief. So whatever that reason is, they have a real or perceived grievance with the world in general or an individual or a business. And then they decide that they're going to act on that. So they get this ideation, I'm going to act on this perceived grievance or real grievance. And then they begin to plan and prepare for these types of acts. Now, when people first started talking about these types of shootings, 
in the news interviews, they'd stop and talk to his neighbor and they'd say, oh, he's a really nice guy. He kind of kept to himself. He never did anything like that before. And the law enforcement officer would say, I don't know, he must have just snapped. Well, none of these guys snap. None of them. They have an ideation and then they plan and prepare. And here's where the red flag laws could come in. The planning and preparation can go on for hours, but more likely days. In fact, the FBI found that in more than 50% of the cases, it went on for days, sometimes months, and even years. These are not things that happen in a couple of days and nobody can see. What happens is people begin to plan and prepare before the attack, and all of those are behaviors of concern, as Secret Service and the FBI would say, behaviors of concern that we can see and we can stop. So just an example of the latest shooting, which would be the Indianapolis shooter. He shut down his social media sites months ago. They buy their guns. They order ammunition. They change their behaviors in this way. They might stop taking medication that they have been taking. They do preparation for end of life. They give away things. They wipe their laptops. All of that kinds of behavior. Remember, a lot of these people commit suicide. So it's the same behaviors that we might see for suicide. People who are distressed because they filed for bankruptcy, they pull away from people, they stop talking to people, they start missing their jobs, they pull away from their family and friends. All of those behaviors of concern lead up to someone committing a violent act like this. So it's not a profile, but it's behaviors that were visible. So it leads me to two questions. One, in a sense, what you want is an interception. You want to be able to step into that press. How would you know enough to step in? Well, I think on a small scale, the example would be when you're a teenager and they were starting to run with a rough crowd. It's kind of like that. And then you try to divert them. So that's actually what is done. After the Virginia Tech shooting, the Virginia legislature passed a law that requires threat assessment teams in every school in Virginia. And those threat assessment teams take that information and they compile it. So if people are aware enough to report behaviors of concern to a threat assessment team, whether it's at a school or whether it's at a place of business, I work with clients to set up threat assessment teams at their places of business, for instance, or at a church, then the threat assessment team can develop a threat management plan to take somebody from overly stressed because they filed for bankruptcy and their wife is divorcing them and they might lose their job and help find mechanisms to control them, whether that's mental health needs, maybe that's taking their guns away from them for a few months. I mean, not that that's the do-all be-all, but just examples of the kind of things that might help them to get job support, to get another job. Maybe they have a child who has some medical issue that's just overwhelming, and they just can't see any solution, and they're going to do a murder-suicide with their child, for instance. If any law enforcement or any threat assessment team gets information about these behaviors of concern about an individual at work, for instance, or school, the threat assessment team can piece together, and this is how we avert attacks. This is how law enforcement and schools avert attacks, which you may seem like that doesn't happen, but they do it all the time. And it's hard to quantify how many attacks are averted, but there's definitely been research to show that we've averted attacks because Threat assessment teams have gathered information. We just had one in San Antonio. A woman reported on a Monday that on Friday, the guy she worked with said he was going to commit a mass shooting. He had made other threats before. She eventually decided she was afraid enough. She reported it to her boss. 
The boss reported it to police. The police went to the guy's house and found out from the guy's dad that the guy had just purchased a gun. And the guy was gathering ammunition and he had a hit list and he was going to go out and do this. So they averted attacks because people put the information together. Sometimes law enforcement has to put it together, but sometimes the school threat assessment team can put it together. And Virginia passed this law after Virginia Tech. But I can tell you that Illinois passed the same law after the Northern Illinois shooting up there at that university. Connecticut passed it after Sandy Hook. But we don't have a national policy or certainly any funding to support threat assessment teams. And some of the schools and places have threat assessment teams, but they don't really use them. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Follow. 
to ask you this. Have you looked at the guy in Las Vegas who killed so many people? At the Live Nation shooting? Yeah. I've never understood that. I can tell you that the FBI's behavioral team specifically looked at him and looked at the facts behind that case. And they found that was one of those kind of rare cases where they found absolutely no explanation for why he did that. It was definitely the most tragic situation that we faced, but we don't have a reason why, despite everybody's look at it. Yeah, well, that's the sense I got is that it occurred it's kind of an isolation. Very much so. It just happened as a tragedy. You know what? Even though that's true about the incident, there were behaviors of concern. That guy took cases, cases of weapons and ammunition into that hotel room, stayed there for a long time, and nobody questioned it. And I can tell you that that hotel and all the hotels in Vegas changed their policies after that about allowing somebody to stay in their room and never checking on it. So if you were to take that example and, for example, the schools that have active intervention programs, are there a set of best practices which, in a sense, ought to consciously permeate the country and become a standard of how to minimize and avoid these kind of disasters? I think there are for sure. I think you have to have school counselors and principals who are trained to understand what behaviors to look for. Law enforcement in the communities have to be trained to do that. Since Columbine and even before, but certainly since Columbine, a lot of law enforcement was trained in how to respond to an active shooter. But until the FBI picked up the mantle after Sandy Hook, there wasn't a national messaging on how civilians should respond, run, hide, fight, and how law enforcement should respond. And that national messaging really helped to permeate the message throughout the United States. And I think we don't have that when it comes to threat assessment teams. So we have a lot of people out there ringing their bells about threat assessment teams, but not a lot of national messaging on it. From that standpoint, were you surprised at how badly Uvalde was handled? Oh, yes. It hurts my head. It hurts my head how bad that was. I was not only just surprised at how badly it was handled, I was kind of shocked and disappointed in a personal way because the initial response to that whole type of shooting was the FBI has to do a better job of supporting law enforcement and giving them the training and making sure. And while I was in the FBI, we trained 330 of our tactical instructors in this type of training. We created train the trainer programs so they could work out of our 56 field offices and go to these small towns. You know, most law enforcement departments are 50 or less. They're very small departments. They don't have money for training. They don't have money to travel. And so we trained all these tactical instructors to give free training on the ground in their communities to these local law enforcement officers. And we have given, and I don't say it's free, it's tax dollars, right? But I thought it was well-spent tax dollars because we sent the equipment to every field office and we trained tens of thousands of law enforcement officers and the officers at Uvalde. Most all those officers were trained in the exact same methodology. And so after all of these years, to see such groupthink fail was just gut-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's just tragic. Well, all law enforcement, you should be thinking always when you're on the scene about saving the lives of the people who are at risk. You have better training than they do. You have better equipment than they do. They have nothing. The idea that there were kids and adults bleeding out at the end of that hallway 
And those guys were standing in the hallway, fist bumping and cleaning their hands with hand sanitizer made me want to throw up. Truthfully, I was so upset. Astonishing. You know, in the world of law enforcement, it's not easy to do, but it's simple to do. We saw from the film that officers ran right in. There was shooting underway. They should have gone through the door. They backed away. They stopped. They went back to the door. They waited when they were shot at. They should have gone through the door. They should have gone through the walls. They saw where the shooting was coming from because they were shot at. They should have shot back. And they didn't do that. They retreated again down the hallway. So everything they did was wrong from the moment that they stopped at the doorway. Everything was wrong. It was just all wrong. Do you think it's because just their cohesion broke down? You know, law enforcement is trained in incident command. It's trained under the NIM system that everybody uses, that's national incident management. They knew what to do. I think that's the heartbreaking part is that those officers, you hear some of it in the chatter and they'll be more released. They knew what to do. It was, I think, a question of not being able to execute it at that moment. And then once they had stopped, I mean, think about it, you're barreling down the highway at 80 miles an hour and you get off on the off-ramp, you can't get back on. And they didn't make that decision at the moment. And then it was easy for them to just say, well, somebody else is going to have to figure this out. And it was, I think, a lot of nobody was in charge, even though it's so clear to all of law enforcement that the first person on the scene is the person in charge. That's the rule in law enforcement. You're in charge. You're the incident commander until somebody else takes over. So all those law enforcement officers that showed up, every one of them should have been responding. And there will be a reckoning. And I think the sad part is that, you know, we see after these kinds of incidents, we also see suicides in law enforcement, and there will probably be suicides there. I hope not. They should all be on mental health watch right now. Their families should be aware of that. Their communities should be aware. It's such a sad response, and there's no excuse for it. They were all trained in it. Those officers were trained in the same training that we gave our tactical officers that our tactical officers gave to the United States law enforcement. So I want to thank you. I'm really impressed with how much this is your life, not just your job, and how much you are dedicated to trying to help America sort its way through this thing. And your book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, I think is going to really help change things, not just for members of law enforcement, but I think those who establish public policy need to really understand the way you do, in a much more sophisticated way, the patterns of what we've been up against and the way those patterns are evolving. I want to thank you for joining me, and I hope we have a chance to continue this dialogue in the future. I appreciate the opportunity. And, and you know, I know books are expensive, so I'm just going to plug this and say podcasts are free. How do they reach your podcast? You can go to my website. Stop the Killing is on the website. So it's katherineschweit.com, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-S-C-H-W-E-I-T.com. We'll do all we can to try to help you. Thank you. I think, you know, more important to me is that we do all we can to stop the killing. Thank you to my guest, Katherine Schweit. You can get a link to buy her book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. 
Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.